Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, as well as better informing the general public about mental health issues. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Welcome back. Appreciate your tuning into this podcast and want to mention that this was pre-recorded for airing initially on July 29th, 2015. And uh, once again, it is my sad duty to start this podcast with a psychiatry and the law item. It was just last week that I brought to you the news that the Colorado theater shooter was convicted of murder. The insanity defense uh, he mounted, his legal team mounted, having failed. And in the wake of that, we have another theater shooting, this time in Louisiana. And unlike the case in Colorado where James Holmes had not been known to authorities and had not had uh, previous trouble, this shooter in this movie theater in Louisiana was well known to have mental illness, was well known to legal authorities in several jurisdictions, and yet he was able to purchase the firearm with which he committed his crimes. John Russell Hauser was deeply troubled long before he shot 11 people in a movie theater in Louisiana, but decades of mental problems didn't keep him from buying the handgun he used. Despite obvious and public signs of mental illness, most importantly, a Georgia judge's order committing him to mental health treatment against his will as a danger to himself and others. In 2008, Hauser was able to walk into an Alabama pawn shop six years later and buy a 40 caliber handgun, the same weapon he used to kill two people and wound nine others before killing himself at a showing of the movie Trainwreck. The major point there being that if you've been committed to mental health treatment against your will by a judge, that should automatically cause you to fail a background check for purchasing a firearm. Court records reviewed by the Associated Press strongly suggest Hauser should have been reported to the state and federal databases used to keep people with serious mental illnesses from buying firearms. According to Judge Susan Tate, who presides over a probate court in Athens, Georgia, 
and has studied issues relating to weapons and the mentally ill, she said, it sure does seem like something failed. No kidding. I have no idea how he was able to get firearms, she said. Hauser never should have been able to buy a gun, according to Sheriff Heath Taylor in Russell County, Alabama, whose office denied him a concealed weapons permit in 2006 based on arson and domestic violence allegations, even though the victims declined to pursue charges. Well, at least that sheriff did all he could. Hauser racked up plenty of complaints, but no evidence has surfaced of any criminal conviction that would have kept him from passing the background check required for many gun purchases. That's true, but uh, again, the commitment to mental health treatment against his will by the, ju the judge previous to that should have kept him from passing the background check. Federal law does generally prohibit the purchase or possession of a firearm by anyone who has ever been involuntarily committed for mental health treatment. And that's what happened to Hauser in 2008 after his family accused him of threatening behavior, warning authorities that he had a history of bipolar disorder and was making ominous statements. His wife removed his guns and together, the family persuaded a judge to issue a protective order, keeping him away once he left the hospital. At that point, court officials should have reported Hauser's involuntary mental commitment to the Georgia database that feeds the FBI's background check system, which provides for a delay of up to three days when records suggest a buyer may be ineligible. Questions about gaps in this system also arose after James Holmes, that's the Colorado theater shooter, bought firearms to kill 12 people and wound 58 others in a Denver suburb movie theater three years ago, and also after Dylan Storm Ruth allegedly used a gun he bought this year to murder nine churchgoers in Charleston, South Carolina. But while both young men showed signs of trouble, neither had criminal convictions, nor were they hospitalized against their will, as was Hauser. Roof had admitted to illegal drug possession in a pending criminal case, however, which under federal rules would have been enough to disqualify him from a gun purchase even though he wasn't convicted. But the FBI background check examiner never saw Roof's arrest report because the wrong arresting agency was listed in state records and the three-day hold timed out without a clear answer. So the gun dealer used his discretion to complete the sale. When Hauser tried to buy his gun, on February 26, 2014. The system only briefly delayed his purchase, according to a federal official who spoke on the condition of anonymity because of the ongoing investigation. The seller was advised the following day that the sale could proceed. It was Carroll County Probate Judge Betty Kaysen 
who authorized authorities to detain Hauser in 2008, according to court records. Her court also issued the order involuntarily committing Hauser to West Central Regional Hospital in Columbus, Georgia, according to legal filings from an attorney representing Hauser's wife and other family members. Judge Tate, who was not involved in Hauser's case, said an involuntarily, uh, involuntary commitment order normally prompts a judge to file a report with the Georgia Crime Information Center, which keeps about 5,000 records on people who cannot buy guns because they have been judged insane, involuntarily hospitalized, or legally depend on someone else to manage their affairs. Those state records feed the FBI's database, which in turn is used to process background checks. It is not clear whether Judge Kaysen ever filed such a report, and predictably she did not return the Associated Press's phone call seeking comment. Like many states, Georgia has a highly decentralized court system spread over its 159 counties. Experts have long worried that probate judges are not reporting every mental health commitment. The former director of Georgia's criminal records database, Terry Gibbons, wrote in 2013 that, quote, some courts are reluctant to report mental health records due to perceived privacy and HIPAA concerns, HIPAA being the, stands for Health Information uh, Privacy and Protection Act. And Judge Tate said, I suspect there may be some courts where the reporting is not done just because they were having trouble keeping up with day-to-day -day work of people coming into their offices needing help. A month after Hauser bought the gun last year, the family that brought his foreclosed home filed suit to evict him. By May of 2014, a judge ordered him out. Hauser finally left, but only after tampering with the gas lines, throwing paint and pouring concrete in the plumbing, among other vandalism, the sheriff said, but no charges were filed. This March, Kelly Hauser finally filed for a divorce, saying their relationship was irretrievably broken and his whereabouts were unknown. He called her the next week, threatening her again. Then she got a call from Hauser's mother saying he had threatened to kill himself outside his mother's retirement community if she didn't give him money. She wrote that she urged the mother to seek to have him hospitalized again. Instead, police said the woman gave her son $5,000. Hauser kept writing on right-wing extremist message boards after leaving Alabama. He praised Adolf Hitler and advised people not to underestimate the power of the lone wolf. And a, a group that tracks uh, hate groups, the Southern Poverty Law Center, found that uh, he, who had tracked Hauser since 2005, uh, when he registered to meet with former Ku Klux Klan leader,
David Duke. Um, they have this information uh, with Hauser posting these messages on hate group boards and so on. Outside the movie theater where the shooting took place, Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal said that now is not the time to discuss gun control. Well, you know, the uh, controversy about the mentally ill obtaining firearms and committing crimes is not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, what I've presented to you so far are the facts of the matter of what happened. Uh, I'll give you my take on this controversy when we come back from our first commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio Online. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking about the Louisiana movie shooter and how he... came to the point at which he committed his last crimes and took his own life with law enforcement about to confront him and apprehend him uh, by way of having gotten through the system despite there being places along the way he should have been stopped from purchasing a firearm, especially when a judge committed him to mental health treatment against his will. It is very clear that we as a nation value our Second Amendment rights of possession of firearms much more so than we consider the idea that uh, everyone shouldn't have access to guns in order to prevent crimes like this. That being the case, what then is the solution 
to stopping incidents like this. And by the way, many, many other mass shootings that take place by the sane as well as the mentally ill that don't get as much publicity as shootings like this one, the Aurora, Colorado shooting, or the Chattanooga shooting, which, by the way, still at the time I'm recording this podcast, is not totally clear that the uh, the person who committed those shootings had a definite history of mental illness. But regardless, what then is the solution given that we value our Second Amendment Amendment rights so strongly, which is fine. Um, Perhaps the solution would be better enforcement of the rules that are already in place. Uh, There is a system in place that would have prevented Dylan Roof from purchasing a firearm and, and perhaps would have delayed his plan to go into a church during Bible study group, worship with them for an hour, and then kill nine people. And similarly, there was a system in place that should have prevented John Russell Hauser from purchasing the gun he used to kill two people and wound several others who were just going out to see a movie. But is that alone enough to prevent tragedies like this? Could not these men have obtained a firearm illegally, bypassing the proper legal system that should have caught them had mistakes not been made? Um, There are no easy answers, but uh, regardless of which side you are on the issue, it is my personal belief that at the moment, until and unless something changes, Um, The very, very grim reality is that none of us are safe from firearms anywhere we go. Clearly not in a public place, as demonstrated by shootings in movie theaters, shopping malls, schools, and so on. But also well-documented shootings that take place by random stray bullets that go through walls of the innocent's apartments or houses. So really, I hate to paint such a grim picture, but whether we're talking about the mentally ill or not, uh, gun violence is a problem we all have to deal with, and it's not going away anytime soon. Well, I will change the subject now, and now we're going to talk about a veteran's mental health update. This study that I'm going to tell you about isn't exactly uplifting, but it's nonetheless very important that the study was done. Turns out that there are some Vietnam vets who currently have post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD some 40 years after the war ended, according to a new study. Now, you on the veterans and military mental health updates that I give you, we've uh, been talking about the different Iraq war and the Afghanistan war veterans, mental health, uh, but 
looking back 40 years since the Vietnam War ended, the study estimates about 271,000 veterans who served in that war zone are estimated to have current full post-traumatic stress disorder plus sub-threshold, meaning some uh, diagnostic criteria but not the full diagnosis of war zone PTSD and more than one-third have current major depressive disorder. This according to an article that was published online by the Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry. The study builds on the National Vietnam Veterans Readjustment Survey, which was implemented from 1984 through 1988, about 10 years after the war ended. The author's National Vietnam Veterans Longitudinal Study is the first follow-up to this older study. There were 1,839 veterans from the original study still living at the time of this most recent study. And uh, that st most recent study took place from July 2012 to May 2013. And almost 80% of the veterans participated in at least one phase of the study. The authors estimate a prevalence among male war zone veterans of 4.5% for a current diagnosis of PTSD, 10.8% based on that assessment plus sub-threshold PTSD. So in other words, they have some symptoms, but not the full-blown diagnosis. 11.2% for current war zone PTSD. Among female veterans, the estimates were 6.1%, 8.7%, and 6.6% respectively. The study also found coexisting major depression in 36.7% of veterans with current war zone PTSD. About 16% of war zone Vietnam veterans reported an increase of more than 20 points on a PTSD symptom scale, while 7.6% reported a decrease of greater than 20 points on the symptom scale. An important minority of Vietnam veterans are symptomatic after four decades, with more than twice as many deteriorating as improving. The authors conclude Policy implications include the need for greater access to evidence-based mental health services, the importance of integrating mental health treatment into primary care in light of the nearly 20% mortality, attention to the stresses of aging, including retirement, chronic illness, declining social support, and cognitive changes that create difficulties with the management of unwanted memories and anticipating challenges that lie ahead for Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. Well, it's a wake-up call that we're still not paying enough attention to the mental health needs of our much older Vietnam veterans uh, while we fortunately pay somewhat more attention 
to the mental health of our more recent Iraq and Afghanistan veterans and um, currently active soldiers. Uh, <clears throat> but the study also has, as the authors point out, very important implications for long-term mental health issues going forward uh, with respect to our veterans of more recent conflicts. If this is the type of long-term snapshot that they can look forward to, it's rather sobering and it points out that uh, we definitely need to do more for the mental health of our soldiers, no matter how long ago they were in conflict. Now, you may very well know, and if not, you should know, that PTSD is far and away not confined to those who have served combat. Um, anyone who is a civilian who has witnessed or been a victim of trauma may suffer from PTSD. And the next study that I'm going to talk to you about shows that PTSD and traumatic experiences may increase the risk of heart attack and stroke in women. Uh, so women who experience these traumatic events or also develop PTSD have a greater risk of future cardiovascular disease than women with no history of traumatic uh, events, according to research in the American Heart Association journal Circulation. In the first study, the first major study of PTSD and the onset of cardiovascular disease, including both heart attacks and strokes exclusively in women, researchers examined about 50,000 participants in the Nurses' Health Study Part 2 over 20 years. Now, you know that PTSD occurs in some people after traumatic events, <clears throat> not just combat, but a natural disaster, unwanted sexual contact, or physical assault. Patients suffering from PTSD may experience flashbacks of the trauma. A flashback is vivid, intense recall of the events that take place during the waking state. It's like someone is watching a movie of it happen. And they also suffer from insomnia, fatigue, trouble remembering or concentrating, and emotional numbing. Other symptoms include nightmares, irritability, and being startled easily. And PTSD is twice as common in women as in men. Women with four or more PTSD symptoms had 60% higher rates of cardiovascular disease compared to women who weren't exposed to traumatic events. Women with no PTSD symptoms but who reported traumatic events had 45% higher rates of cardiovascular disease. And I think what we'll do here is we'll take a commercial break and we'll come back and continue our look at this study and more mental health related news for you in this late July evening and Please come back after this next break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare. 
Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. My name is Dr. Jeff Terry from Mobile, Alabama. I love taking care of my patients and not computers. That is why I need your help. On October 1st, the government will mandate that I implement the new ICD-10 coding system, and if not able to do so, then I will be put out of business and my patients will have to find a new physician. Please call and write your congressmen and senators today and tell them no to ICD-10. Tell them physicians need a grace period in order to concentrate on you, the patient, and not the computer. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio Online. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Current topic is a study showing that women who have experienced traumatic events and also women who suffer from PTSD have markedly higher rates of cardiovascular disease, including heart attack and stroke, than those who don't. Almost half of the association between Elevated PTSD symptoms and cardiovascular disease was accounted for by unhealthy behaviors like smoking, obesity, lack of exercise, and medical factors such as high blood pressure. PTSD is generally considered a psychological problem, but the take-home message from these findings is that it also has a profound impact on physical health, especially cardiovascular risk. Most studies of cardiovascular disease risk in PTSD patients have been conducted in men who have served in the military or among disaster survivors. This current study is unique in that it examined women from community who were exposed to a variety of traumatic events. Researchers used a questionnaire to evaluate different types of traumatic experiences and PTSD symptoms. They also considered cardiovascular disease risk factors such as obesity, lack of exercise, 
diabetes, cigarette smoking, high blood pressure, and other contributors to cardiovascular health, such as excessive alcohol use and hormone replacement use. PTSD emerged as a risk factor for cardiovascular disease in a sample of women under the age of 65. Physicians should be aware of this link and screen for cardiovascular disease risk, as well as monitor related health conditions and behaviors, including encouraging changes in lifestyle factors that may increase this risk. More than half the people in the United States who suffer from PTSD don't get treatment, especially minorities. Women need to get mental health care to treat symptoms as well as be monitored for signs of cardiovascular problems. That's certainly the basic take-home message from this study. Next up on psychiatry today, well, it would seem to be just common sense that if someone is suffering mental health problems in childhood, then that could compromise their chances of growing up successfully compared to someone who doesn't, or perhaps not, it's so intuitive, but regardless, a study has found that to be the case that children with even mild or passing bouts of depression, anxiety, and or behavioral issues were more inclined to have serious problems that complicated their ability to lead successful lives as adults, according to research from Duke Medicine. Reporting in the July 15 issue, of the Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry, the Duke researchers found that children who had either a diagnosed psychiatric condition or a milder form that didn't meet the full diagnostic criteria were six times more likely than those who had no psychiatric issues to have difficulties in adulthood, including criminal charges, addictions, early pregnancies, education failures, residential instability, and problems getting or keeping a job. When it comes to key psychiatric problems, depression, anxiety, behavior disorders, there are successful interventions and prevention programs. So we do have the tools to address these, but they aren't implemented widely. The burden is then later seen in adulthood when these problems become costly public health and social issues. Researchers analyzed data from the Great Smoky Mountains study, which began nearly two decades ago. It includes 1,420 participants from 11 North Carolina counties. The study is ongoing and has followed the participants from childhood through adulthood. Most are now in their 30s. Among the study group, 26.2% met the criteria for depression, anxiety, or a behavioral disorder in childhood. 31% had milder forms that were below the full threshold of a diagnosis. 
and 42.7% had no identified problems. The researchers found that as these children grew into adults, even some of those who had no psychiatric diagnosis as children, nearly one in five, stumbled in adulthood, suggesting that difficulties were not limited to those with psychiatric diagnoses. But having a psychiatric diagnosis or a close call dramatically raised the odds that adulthood would have rough patches. This was the case even if they did not continue to have psychiatric problems in adulthood. Of those with the milder psychiatric indicators as kids, 41.9% had at least one of the problems in adulthood that complicates success, and 23.2% had more than one such issue. For those who met the full psychiatric diagnosis criteria, 59.5% had a serious challenge as adults, and 34.2% had multiple problems. Specific psychiatric disorders were associated with specific adult problems, but the best predictor of having adult issues was having multiple psychiatric problems as kids. The findings reinforced the need to attack problems early with effective therapies. Only about 40% of children get the treatment they need for psychiatric disorders, and even fewer who have borderline problems are treated. A big problem with mental health in the United States is that most children don't get treatment, and those who don't don't get those who do get treatment rather don't get what would be considered optimal care. So the problems wind up going on much longer than they need to or should and cost much more than they should in both money and damaged lives. Now, of course, there are many reasons why. First and foremost, there are not nearly enough practitioners of the mental health profession to be able to treat all the children who need help. Even if a parent seeks out psychiatric treatment, for their child or adolescent, uh, or just therapy or counseling, not with a psychiatrist, but with a psychologist, social worker, licensed professional counselor. There are too few of these clinicians available to see all these kids, and the vast majority of them do not accept health insurance, uh, leaving a significant cost burden uh, for this care on their parents. Other issues include parents who may be reluctant to seek this type of treatment for their children due to the strong stigma of mental health issues. So there are contributing factors on both sides, but far and away it's the pressure of there not being enough practitioners and those who are in practice uh, being too costly to access. <clears throat> this definitely needs to change in order to assure that these kids grow up to be more successful as adults.
Next up on Psychiatry Today, a study that purports to show what your brain looks like when you think you're going to die. Now you might think, well, why would any scientist want to study that? <clears throat> well, because it could lead to some useful information as to what's going on in the brain in states of tremendous anxiety and fear. For example, in post-traumatic stress disorder, which we've talked about a lot on uh, tonight's podcast so far. <clears throat> so here goes the scenario for the study. Imagine being on a plane and being told the jet is out of fuel and you now have to prepare for a crash. That's exactly what happened to 304 passengers aboard an August 2001 flight that ran out of fuel midway over the Atlantic Ocean flying from Ontario to Portugal and was forced to make an emergency landing without the jet's two engines functioning. The plane nearly crashed into the Atlantic Ocean. The passengers were told to prepare for an ocean ditching, which included a countdown to impact. Yet the pilot miraculously landed the aircraft on a small island military base in the Azores. A lot of people were praying and screaming for God, recalled one passenger in a documentary on the flight. It's a struggle to stay calm when you're considering your own death, said another. My best friend was talking to his father who died three years ago, but he's talking to him because he thought for sure he'd be joining him, said another passenger. We've heard the term about being scared out of our mind, and now researchers from the United States and Canada have discovered how the brain looks during a moment of sheer terror and how it processes a traumatic experience. The study, which was published in the journal Clinical Psychology Science, was conducted in two phases and consisted of people who were aboard this flight. During one phase, 15 passengers from the flight volunteered to complete a memory test that asked about this incident about three years after it took place. They were also asked to recall memories from September the 11th, which happened just a few weeks after their near-plane crash, as well as from a neutral event. Well, before we discuss their findings, let's take our another commercial break. We'll be right back with more on this study and other mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Georgia author Doug Dahlgren. Join me Fridays at 11 a.m. for a new show here on America's Web Radio. We call it the Prologue. I'll be introducing you to other writers you may not have heard of yet. That's Fridays at 11 a.m. here on America's Web Radio. 
Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking about a study looking at fear and what the brain looks like with such severe fear as what people face when they think they're about to die. Um, And again, this was United States and Canadian researchers using as their subjects passengers who were on a plane that was preparing for a crash landing and faced near certain death until the pilot was able to successfully land it. Now, again, they, uh, they had the passengers complete a memory test about the incident, about the near-death experience in the plane, and also their memories from September 11th, and then also memories from a neutral event. Now, what they discovered is that all of these participants remembered a remarkable amount of detail from the harrowing uh, flight that almost ended in their death. Those participants who were suffering from PTSD tended to offer additional information that was off topic. Now, they conducted another study 10 years later and included a little bit fewer. The first phase of the study was 15 passengers. This next phase 10 years later included only eight of the former passengers. The participants, some of them with PTSD, were shown news footage from the flight, news footage from the attacks of September 11, and news footage from a neutral event. And then they were placed inside a functional magnetic resonance imaging scanner during this process. This time around, researchers noticed that certain regions of the brain, specifically the amygdala, the hippocampus, and the midline frontal and posterior areas of the, of the brain were activated as the volunteers remembered their flight as well as September the 11th. Now, the amygdala is a small area of the middle of the brain that is mainly involved in assigning emotional aspects to traumatic or fearful or uh, tortures events. And the hippocampus is a small area in the temporal lobe of the brain which provides uh, the contextual aspects of memory of events. So it's easy to see why these areas uh, basically lit up 
as the subjects were, were watching this footage. Now, these brain changes did not occur in other participants that were in a comparison group who had not been passengers on the flight and were merely recalling the attacks of September the 11th. And again, regions of the brain, such as especially the amygdala, are well known for their role in emotional processing uh, of fearful stimuli. So, uh, for example, this region lights up when you see angry or also sad faces or videos. And then the regions like the hippocampus are critical for memory, and it lights up when we encode and remember many different types of information. And so it seems that emotions and memory have a strong link. While people consider emotion and memory as separate processes, in reality, the regions that support emotion and memory interact. Other researchers have shown greater crosstalk between these regions when we encode new emotional experiences, as well as when we remember them. This work shows that these regions are both active when we remember a trauma. The carryover effect from the near-plane crash changed the way these participants process new information, which indicates that a severely distressing event such as what they went through may make them see the world through a new lens. People who have experienced trauma may become more sensitized to things in their environment. It may evoke more emotion, and that in turn could influence how the event is remembered. There is certainly some research to support this idea. So this lens is a likely a more sensitive and cautious one. Think, for example, someone who has gone through a fire or a flood and how they might react to a car accident, for example, as opposed to someone who has not been through a fire or flood. Researchers are hoping these latest findings will lead to help in terms of understanding and improving treatments for PTSD. Next up on Psychiatry Today. <clears throat> Some potentially exciting news about new compounds that may treat depression rapidly with few side effects. Now, ever since the buzz about ketamine, which is an anesthetic that is also used as a club drug and called Special K in that context, and has some pretty severe side effects, such as psychosis and hallucinations, but was found to rapidly relieve symptoms of even severe depression uh, within hours as opposed to days or weeks, there's been a furious search for anything that would relieve depression that quickly but not risk those serious side effects like psychosis and hallucinations and also not have to be administered intravenously the way ketamine is. So here a new study by researchers at the University of Maryland School of Medicine has identified promising compounds that could successfully treat depression in less than 24 hours while minimizing side effects. Although they have not yet been tested in people, 
the compounds could offer significant advantages over current antidepressant medications. The research was published this past month in the journal Neuropsychopharmacology. There is evidence that these compounds can relieve the devastating symptoms of depression in less than one day and do so in a way that limits some of the key disadvantages of current approaches. Currently, most people with depression take medications that increase levels of the neurochemical serotonin in the brain. That's actually um, a misnomer, and again, most articles published in the lay press make this mistake. Uh, they certainly manipulate the balance of serotonin, but they're not simply increasing the levels of it. Now, the most common of these drugs, such as Prozac and Lexapro, and there are many others, uh, Paxil, Zoloft, Luvox, and Celexa, they are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs. There are other antidepressants, by the way, but the press seem to think these are the only ones. Unfortunately, SSRIs are effective in only about a third of patients with depression. In addition, even when these drugs work, they typically take between three and eight weeks to relieve symptoms. As a result, patients often suffer for months before finding a medicine that helps them feel better. This is not only emotionally excruciating, in the case of patients who are suicidal, it can be deadly. Better treatments for depression are clearly needed. Now, the, the team who did this research focused on another neurotransmitter besides serotonin, an inhibitory compound called GABA, standing for uh, gamma aminobutyric acid. Brain activity is determined by a balance of opposing excitatory and inhibitory communication between brain cells. In depression, the excitatory messages in some brain regions aren't strong enough. Because there is no safe way to directly strengthen excitatory communication, they ex these researchers examined a class of compounds that reduce the inhibitory messages sent via GABA. They predicted that these compounds would restore excitatory strength. These compounds, called GABA-NAMs, minimize unwanted side effects because they are precise. That is, they work only in the parts of the brain that are essential for mood. The researchers tested the compounds in rats that were subjected to chronic mild stress that caused the animals to act in ways that resemble human depression. What they do is they put the rats in a situation where even if they swim furiously when placed in water, they're not able to escape a situation where they may drown. Uh, don't worry, um, members of PETA and others who care for the rights of animals, even rats, that the scientists don't actually let them drown. But for better or for worse, this is a model of creating depression in a lab animal that, believe it or not, can successfully screen for a compound that may treat depression in humans. I know it seems like a stretch, folks, but it is a mammalian brain, and there are analogous structures, and there are the same neurochemicals. 
In any case, giving these stressed rats, these GABA NAMs, successfully reversed experimental signs of a key symptom of depression, which is anhedonia, or the inability to feel pleasure. Remarkably, the beneficial effects of the compounds appeared within 24 hours, much faster than the multiple weeks needed for antidepressants to produce the same effects. In tests on the rats' brains, the researchers found that the compounds rapidly increased the strength of excitatory communication in regions that were weakened by stress and are thought to be weakened in human depression as well. No effects of the compound were detected in unstressed animals, raising hopes that they will not produce side effects in human patients. Now, this is certainly interesting and promising, but again, we're talking about rat research, and to say that this is many years away from being able to be tested in humans is a gross understatement. It may be as long as decades, uh, but at least the research is proceeding, and maybe now there's a direction they can proceed in that will be promising. Uh, as always, I will continue to bring you the latest information on research that may lead to better treatments for depression than we have now, which really don't uh, fully treat the illness in a majority of patients who suffer from it. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. Hope you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you and found it informative, and I hope that you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together again next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.